Oh, we got another great voice today. We're talking to Carolyn Caldwell. She's a hospital CEO as well as a mother, a wife, and a uh, philanthropist. Much, much more. We're going to cover uh, acts of kindness, COVID, talking about Camp Hill, Alabama, uh, her school experience, signing with an X. What does that mean? You're going to find out. Stick with us. Everything is fueled from me wanting to be a better person on Earth. It's time to do your part. I don't want you to dream. I want you to do it. Tap into the conversation. Check one, two. As we cover the latest issues affecting our communities and the world. It is absolutely vital that the truth comes out. Resolve your unconscious bias and grow from firsthand experiences. Is your mind truly free or is it caged? This is Do Your Part with Brian Gallo. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to Do Your Part. Again, it's all about doing your part today. Carolyn is here to do her part. Carolyn Caldwell, uh, she's a local hero. I'm going to call you that. We were talking about the words mentor uh, and other highlighted words and really kind of describe her. So Carolyn's here. I'm so glad. How you doing? I'm doing great, Brian. Thank you. And thank you for asking me to be your guest today. Of course, of course. I always ask guests, why are you here today? And so what's your answer to that? Why are you here today? You know, you reached out to me um, and wanted to hear what I had to say, and particularly with everything that's kind of happening in our country right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had other people do the same thing. I think I shared with you. I did a podcast not too long ago with Becker's Healthcare, just talking about healthcare. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you asked, I looked at some of your other podcasts, and I thought, gosh, if there is anything that I can say, um, that would make a difference or that people would find useful, Mm -hmm. uh, definitely want to do my part. So thank you. No, thank you. You know, I don't know too much about you, but I know that you are a risk taker and you definitely have just your career alone speaks about your personality and, you know, everybody has a story, but I know yours is going to be um, a lot in a positive way. Right. Because we're not here to be doom and gloom. I want to just hear about you and again, your perspective. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah. So let's start with this. Where are you from? I know you're not from the Coachella Valley. No. Okay. Tell me a bit about your upbringing and where you're from. So you didn't pick up on the Southern accent. I well, right when you said accent, I heard it. <laughs> Can I guess Texas? Alabama. Oh, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I grew up in a small town uh, mm-hmm. in rural Alabama, uh, Camp Hill, Alabama. And uh, my parents were older. Uh, they adopted me when I was a baby. So I grew up as an only child. Wow. And um, my father couldn't read and write. Uh, my mom didn't finish school. I think she had maybe like an eighth grade education. Were your parents black? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Yes, but I was so proud of them because, um, you know, there's been conversations lately about land ownership. Mm-hmm. And so they owned land. Uh, They were very well respected in the community. Um, They taught me, you know, to be a very strong person, Mm -hmm. uh, to speak up for myself, um, and to really be a good person, treat people right, Mm -hmm. uh, have good credit. Um, Really? Yeah. Your word is your bond. (laughs) My mom always said, if you tell someone you're going to do something, then you need to do it. And they were very, because um, it was a small town, but everyone respected them mm-hmm. because of how they carried themselves. Mm-hmm. And the thing with respect and having good credit, because my mom, she took pride in the fact that she could go to the local um, store or the, the local furniture store and just pick out what she wanted and walk out of the store. And she would say, when you have good credit, you can do that. And so those things meant a lot to me, you know, growing up as a child. And the fact that they weren't formally educated, um, that never bothered me, Mm -hmm. right? The only thing was that because they weren't formally educated, they just wanted me to graduate high school. Mm -hmm. And they already had these grand plans that I was going to, you know, take the two and a half acres that were above our house married the local guy that I had been dating forever, you know, and we would build a house there and have lots of grandbabies for them and life would be good. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And so I was always really smart, uh, really good in math and science. And so I actually got a scholarship. And so this is going to be a little bit embarrassing, but it all worked out in the end. So <laughs> I got, getting vulnerable. I That's know, what we want. I know. I got a scholarship to uh, Alabama A&M uh-huh. in Huntsville, Alabama. It's an HBCU. 
I had a scholarship to Montevala, which is in Montevala, uh, Alabama, and it was a uh, mixed you know, campus. And then I had one for the uh, local junior college. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go to the local junior college because everyone who had gone there never finished. They never graduated. Uh-huh. So I'm like, I don't want to do that. And so I didn't know a lot about different universities because my parents weren't formally educated. Mm-hmm. So I talked to the school counselor and I said, you know, what did you do? What, what do I do? I was a valedictorian, but there were like only 35 kids in our class. But like I was number one. <laughs> and so Miss Brooks said, OK, let's talk about this. And I still remember to this day she got out. She took out the um, the school yearbooks for both universities. Of course, Montevala was mostly white. You know, there were some African-American kids there, and I'm, it just looked really boring. Mm-hmm. And then I took Alabama A&M, and I'm like, wow, you know, this is awesome. And this is the embarrassing part. There was, like, this really, really cute guy in the book. And I said, Miss Brooks, do you think he'll still be there when I get there? She goes, oh, I'm sure he will. <laughs> and so that was how I picked which one I would go to. <laughs> Of course, when I got there, I probably spent uh-huh. a couple of weeks looking for this guy only to realize that probably was an old book yeah. and he's gone, right? right? But that was that was how I did it. Mm-hmm. And I say that now and say, gosh, that was a little bit embarrassing, but not really. You mm-hmm. know, that was kind of even starting then being able to go to people that can mentor you and guide you. Mm-hmm. Obviously, both parents are deceased now, but they were just really, really so proud mm-hmm. you know, of those accomplishments. They were sad that I left home mm-hmm. to go to school, but they were very proud. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to give the ring back because the guy and I were engaged that I was supposed to marry and build a house with. They were a little sad about that. Um, but they realized that, you know, I had to live my life and that there was more for me than just what was there in that small town. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love this. And I knew I would. Um, I, as I tell you, I take notes and I've already got a full page here. Um, it's interesting to hear these things as far as, uh, A, that's, I don't think it's embarrassing at all. That's what led you to that school and that's part of your story. Right. B, my question is, did you ever meet, find that guy? The guy that, no. That you he, found, no, okay. Well, you had his name. You I know. had his name. He was adorable. But I think what what Miss Brooks didn't tell me at the time, the high school counselor, is uh-huh. that that probably was an old book. Right, right. And he just was nowhere to be found. And she was probably thinking, if this is what's going to get this kid to go the to answer school, is yes. the answer is yes. He'll um, be there greeting you. Yeah, he'll be there. Right. I had to ask because I think as a listener, I'd want to know. Um, also, and I'm going to jump all over the board as I tend to do. Mm-hmm. Um did your did either, either of your parents ever learn how to read? My mother could read. Okay. Um, she had maybe like an eighth grade education. Uh huh. And my father, no. It was what was very interesting. Um, and I, you may not know anything about this, but you know, in those days, a lot of African Americans would the way they would sign their name was with an X, and that was how my father would sign his name because he couldn't read and write. I've never heard this. Yes. And so I taught, I did teach him how to write his name. Uh I taught him what my name and what my mom's name looked like. Mm -hmm. And I tried to teach him how to, how to read, but I couldn't because I I realized that he had learned his own way of how he learned. And when the first time Daniel went home with me, I told him, I said, look, Dad can't read and write, so I don't want you to, you know, take him someplace and end up embarrassed or whatever mm-hmm. or embarrass him. And he's like, okay, fine. So they went to town. Ta- they loved going to town. And so we lived in a small town, but they would go to, you know, Auburn, Alabama. That's where all the shopping was. Mm-hmm. So Daniel came back and he says, your dad can read and write. I said, no, he can't. I said, let me guess. I said, he knew all the different cars. Like if there was a car with a tag from a different state, he knew that. He mm-hmm. goes, yeah. He said, we went in the store and he knew the brands of different products. Mm-hmm. I said, my mom buys the same thing. So he knows it's Tide washing powder. Right. He knows those things he goes yeah but when we went to eat last night at Shoney's he got his menu out he ordered I said because he orders the The same same thing thing. I said he just doesn't know how to read and write I said but he's a very smart person right and so I he has his own he he, created his own way of right I said so he created his own own way of learning I said so you would never know that Mm -hmm. he couldn't read and write if you just knew that he couldn't Mm -hmm. and so as I got older I did realize that you know 
they were both vulnerable because they weren't, you know, formally educated and I didn't want anyone to take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. And so I told my dad, I said, okay, don't ever sign your ex. And now you know how to sign your name. So don't do the ex anymore, but don't do that on anything, you know, unless you let me know or unless you let mom know. Mm -hmm. I didn't want someone to give them something and him not real understanding and end up signing the land or the house away. Yeah, somebody know. taking advantage of it. Exactly. Them. And so that was as I got older, I realized that even though they were smart, that I had to really make sure that I put boundaries there yeah. and that I protected them, mm-hmm. you know, from themselves or just from other people. Well, it sounds like they were open to you being clear about how you were protecting them, too. Oh, absolutely. Showing them examples and steps. Um, so let's talk a little bit about where you were raised, because the fact that your parents owned land, that's a, a remarkable story in its own. Or was this something that was kind of prevalent where you were living? It was prevalent. I mean, it was like I said, it was that was an era where I think that was how people, particularly African-American people, they they show their wealth. It was, you know, you, you owned land. Uh-huh. So our house was on two and a half acres of land. They had, you know, 10 acres of land that they would sell wood from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, you know, when I was in college and, you know, had moved away, my mom said, you know, we want to sell that 10 acres of land. Mm-hmm. They were smart also in that, as they got older, they put everything in my name. And being mm-hmm. an only child, that made it easy. Yeah. Um, and so my mom calls. She goes, hey, you know, we want to sell that because now we're older. You know, we just want to have the money. And I'm like, of course. She goes, well, you own it. You've got to sign it. <laughs> let <laughs> They're us asking sell for your permission. It. I'm like, oh, great. You know, just whatever I need to do. Just mm-hmm. let me know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were very proud. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just very proud that they could you know, own the land and that people in the community um, really looked up to them. Mm -hmm. The thing about that was that, you know, I couldn't get in trouble because my last name, maiden name was Hogan. We Mm -hmm. were the only Hogans in the community. So everyone knew me. Mm -hmm. I made the stupid mistake one time of skipping school in high school. And by the time I got home, my mom (laughs) knew I had skipped school. Because, uh, you know, we're walking around downtown. And people and, are seeing you. Yeah, and someone called her and said, hey, you know, yeah. she's walking around downtown. And I get home and she's like, all right, you know, let's just say I got in a lot of trouble mm-hmm. that day. Mm-hmm. But that was the 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 brand, the name. And she would always say, you know, you can't ever bring shame on our name. Mm-hmm. And they were just proud of, mm-hmm. of how they did things. And they raised me to be that way. So it sounds like, and again, I'm only hearing bits and pieces, but it sounds like you had a pretty pleasant upbringing and a pretty pleasant childhood. It was pleasant. You know, it was it was simple, uh-huh. uh, but it but it was pleasant. So Alabama, we're thinking like uh, burning crosses and stuff like that. That's none you know, of- no, I think because it was rural, mm-hmm. right? And so when you're rural, everyone's rural. Uh huh. Whether you're black or white, I mean, we're all just living in this little rural town together. Mm -hmm. The one thing I I do remember um, when the schools were were integrated, Mm -hmm. uh, because before, you know, the schools were segregated, obviously, but it wasn't like, you know, nobody really talked about it. I mean, Mm -hmm. we knew it. And then when they integrated the schools, there was was that tension. Mm -hmm. Um, And then some of the families did take their the white families took their kids to other places to go to school and i still remember there was this gentleman uh, who owned the local milk dairy and he was friends with my family Um, when my parents passed away you know he was at their funeral and i still remember the night he came to our house because they were going to send their kids um, to this other school Mm -hmm. because the schools had had integrated and he came in and he said, you know, John and Ethel, I need to talk to you. And, of course, I told you, my mom, they're very proud people. She's mm-hmm. like, okay. And he goes, I want you to know it wasn't my decision to move the kids. He, he put it on his wife because it was Barbara's decision. And my mom said, she goes, no, it was your decision. And you went along with it. That's just how they were, right? Called them out. And just called him out, and yeah. he just he turned and walked out. So I remember that little bit, you wow. know, of the stress of growing up, you mm-hmm. know, when that happened. And mm-hmm. basically, that's all I remember. Went to college, you know, Alabama A&M in mm-hmm. Huntsville. Um, mm-hmm. I did marry my college sweetheart, and um, the the 
courtship lasted longer than a marriage. Let's just put it that way. Oh, wow. <laughs> we dated all through college, um, graduated. We had our daughter. Mm-hmm. And when she was probably about 15 months old, I think we both realized that we didn't really know each other mm-hmm. because we spent all our time dating, but we didn't know each other as adults. Oh. And it was pretty obvious that, you know, this is not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so um, got divorced. And I was a medical technologist at the time working in the lab. Mm -hmm. And I knew that salaries were just not that great in Alabama. Mm -hmm. Had this little baby at the time and I thought, where can I go um, and do well financially? So I took out my, uh, our business journal that we got every month and I just started applying for jobs and found this job in Midland, Texas of all places. Um, they were paying a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It was Midland, Texas. And it's like, okay, I'll, I'll move there. You know, they moved me there and everything. And when I got there, and I'm a very spiritual person, I thought, God, why am I here? I mean, this big place is dreadful, but, you know, everything just fell in line. And I ended up meeting Daniel, uh, my husband, um, r- probably shortly after I got there. His sister introduced us um, we were engaged in a month. We were married 10 months later. Whoa. And we'll be celebrating our 31-year wedding anniversary in October of this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Wow. But it was interesting because when we met, I told him, I said, look, I hate West Texas. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really care for Texas. I said, I'm, you know, I'm probably going to move back to the South. I said, you know, this, I moved out here. This is kind of what I needed to separate from my ex-husband, you know, make some really good money, mm-hmm. uh, but this is not gonna be long-term. So I never made it back south. I mean, after we um, ended up getting married, he was in Dallas at the time. So we're in Dallas 15 years. Then I relocated to Missouri for mm-hmm. work, and I've been in the Coachella Valley since 2012. And um, is it safe to say that California is your favorite place to be? It really is, yeah. I mean, we're a little yeah. biased, but I had to uh, ask. We love it here. And, yeah. and what's so interesting about that, you know, Daniel grew up in Texas, mm-hmm. and forever he would always say, because he has his, he works for himself, which is great. You know, mm-hmm. he owns his own company. He's a structured settlement specialist, Caldwell Capital Resources. I'm so okay. proud of him. He's 25 years and he's just been amazing he's done well and he would always say wherever you get promoted or wherever you go in in this healthcare career I'm fine with that because you know I'm I'm flexible Mm -hmm. but we're not moving to California (laughs) we're and it's like okay he's like it costs too much money the people are kind of strange um we're we're just we're not moving there yeah And so when I had the opportunity uh, in Palm Springs, I said, okay, well, can my husband come with me to interview? Because if he's not going to like it here, it's a a no. Yeah. He came with me. He goes, you know, this is pretty cool. And probably a year after we were here, uh, he said, we're going to retire here. And we we just, we both fell in love with California. Wow. Yeah. So never say never. Never say never. And has he seen other parts of California? I mean, that's my other question. Hopefully he has accepted all of Cali because Cali's where it's at. It is. I'm born and raised. I'm a California native. Okay. Great. Um, So you mentioned that you were spiritual. So you, you didn't grow up in the church. Baptist. Oh, you did. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so spiritual is also religious for you. Yes. It gotcha. Is. Sometimes I, uh, when I hear spiritual, I always, I, and I should break myself of that assumption, but I assume that if someone's spiritual, then they're not so much religious. Yes. I always look at religion or spirituality. Um, let's get back to your work. What okay. led you, let's t- tell folks what you do. Let's talk a bit about what you've done and what led you to your work. Yeah. So I think I said earlier, I was always really good in math and science, mm-hmm. right? And so when I uh, first went to Alabama A&M, for whatever reason, keep in mind, I didn't have a lot of guidance because my parents, they weren't uh, you know, college educated. Mm-hmm. So for whatever reason, I thought, I'm going to major in uh, business administration. Why? I don't know. And first couple of classes, I was just bored to tears. <laughs> And I was talking with one of the professors and just said, what do you like? I'm like, I like math and science. Why are you majoring in business? It's like, I don't know. (laughs) He said, okay, go over to the arts and sciences department and talk with Dr. Ward. I think you might really like him. Mm. And I went over there and he um, was one of the professors, but he had been in the military. And he said, tell me what you like. And I told him, he goes, maybe you should major 
in zoology with a minor in chemistry and then you can do a year of clinical internship and become a medical lab technician he goes that's what i did he goes you'll love it and i'm like okay and that's what I did. And so and I you loved it. I did. I yeah. really did. And I still do, even mm-hmm. though I'm a hospital CEO. Mm-hmm. And so I did that, um, graduated, did a year of clinical internship, uh, became a medical technologist. And I've always been um, someone who's been pretty aggressive, you know, wanting to always be a leader. Maybe it was growing up, you know, as an, as an only kid. Mm-hmm. And so did that for about six years you know became a lab director so now i'm directing the lab and then i realized wow you know i'm still young i'm a lab director but there's got to be more and realize that if i go back to grad school get my master's in healthcare administration i can get an administration and i think i can have a greater impact if i do that And I did. I went back to grad school. And when I still had a year left before I finished my master's degree, the CEO at the time uh, promoted me to chief operating officer. And this was back in the 90s. So, you know, I didn't do like the formal fellowships or internships. He just I was lab director, but I worked really hard. I would always raise my hand if there was something extra they needed. Mm -hmm. And so he noticed that. And so they didn't have a COO for like six months. Get a call from the secretary, his secretary, and she says, Mr. Warren wants to see you. And I'm thinking, okay, what is it? And usually, you know, I'm thinking it's one of the doctors, they're upset about something, you know, but I'm so all the way to his office, I'm walking and I'm mad and I'm trying to formulate in my head, you know, what could be wrong. I walk in and he says, have a seat sitting down. And he goes, you know, we hadn't had a COO for about six months now. And I'm realizing I can't do all this. I know you're very close to finishing up your master's degree. What do you think? You know, what do you think about coming in administration? I'll give you some departments. I'll mentor you and work with you. He goes, what do you think? And I'm like, okay. So I go back to my office. But that is huge. I know, but I didn't realize how huge it was. I called the HR director and I said, Mr. Ray, what just happened? He says, I think he just asked you to be his COO. And I'm like, okay. And so that was kind of how it happened. And he and I are still like really, really good friends, Mm -hmm. even today. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went to each other's daughter's wedding and he's just a really really nice man what is it about you uh able you have this ability to be able to uh, mentors find you and vice versa it seems like a lot of the doors that have been open for you were through a your talents but b through mentors and absolutely what is it about that i think that number one i typically have always even as a kid raised my hand right Uh and i think people what it taught me about myself and i know how i have promoted other people now that I've been in a position, people are always watching you, right? Uh-huh. And, and so if you see, because the people I've promoted, you see that young man or that young woman, and they're always going the extra mile. They're mm-hmm. raising their hand when no one else does, and you see something in them, and you mm-hmm. think, wow, you know, this is someone I can take under my wing, and I can really mentor them. And I just feel so blessed because I see so many young people I've mentored mm-hmm. that now they're COOs, they're mm-hmm. CEOs, they're mm-hmm. running their own shop and it just makes you feel good. Yeah. I think that people inherently, most people want to do good and I think that most people, everybody has a mentor in them. Right. You know, and I've, I've had a couple of opportunities more like through the station and internships, but any, and I'm a big brother, but any chance I get to try to mentor somebody, I'm like, yes, this is what life's about. Absolutely. Right. It's making sure that you are um, contributing and uh, creating and bringing light to somebody's life. So this is fantastic. My next question, which you just answered was, are you a mentor? So you've mentored several people. Absolutely. And it's never planned. It just kind of happens, right? It just, it really does. It just, it kind of happens. And uh, before I go to that, I I will share Mm -hmm. something with you that, that I think is very important because, you know, when I, when I was promoted, um, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but sometimes, you know, when we move into a certain role, we think, okay, that's it. I'm here. People are going to accept me right into Mm -hmm. this role. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, Mr. Warren and I were at a meeting and I hadn't been a COO for that long. And it was one of those rubber chicken, you know, chamber kind of events. Which you've attended a ton of. Yes. And so we're together, which is 
back then, I'm, this is the 90s, so probably an odd couple. He's 6'5", mm-hmm. white male, and, you know, here I am, this little short African-American female. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to this other kind of elderly white male, and then he introduced me. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, she's my COO. And he says, he says, what is that? And so before I could say anything, he said, she's the chief operating officer she's the second in charge she's my right hand person she runs the hospital mm-hmm. and he's like oh but he's still looking at me odd and it's like my heart sank right because i was so excited about the title and the role and i just assumed everyone else was going to accept me in that role yeah so we're driving back to the hospital and i'm like i'm still just hurt on the inside and he could feel it and I didn't want to talk to him. I'm looking out the window. I'm not making eye contact. He said, Carolyn, he said, I need you to listen to something. You need to understand there are not a lot of people like you right now. He goes, there are not a lot of women. There are not a lot of African-Americans. You are going to have people say things to you that are just not smart. Yeah. And he goes, you can't get mad every time that happens. He goes, you have to just deal with it. You have to work hard, and you can't just hold it in. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm, but I'm still Don't take mad. Take it personally. Right. right. And and I'm like, okay. And but that day, I still it still hurts even to this day when I think about it. But luckily, he was there, and uh, was able to kind of coach me through that situation. Because uh-huh. yeah. here I am thinking, okay, I'm the COO, you know. Yeah. And he's like, and this guy just kind of burst my bubble, mm-hmm. and I'm like, no, you know, I should not have let him have that kind of impact on me. But when you're young, you know, you, you do take it personal. Yeah. What's interesting is that to hear you and did you still say that it still bothers you a little bit? I think that uh, we all have uh, instances like that. And I think that f- in your case, and sometimes in mine, it can fuel us. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Like, okay, that that's where we're at. All right, watch this. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a weird question. I don't think you can really answer it. But do you think his attitude or re- reaction was more because you were a woman or more because you were black? Um, That's tough. Yeah, it's tough. And I think both, Mm -hmm. right? I think Mm -hmm. both because I was, at that time, the first female and the first African-American to ever have held that position at that hospital. Mm -hmm. And so I think he knew, even when he promoted me, that, you know, it was going to be a challenge and that he really had to support me, you know, and, and be behind me and invest in me. Um, and, and he did, it was a, it was a community that was a very, um, diverse community. So I think in a lot of ways he needed me Mm -hmm. as well as he was trying to maneuver, you know, through that community, because there were times when some of the African-American doctors would come to my office and close the door and say, can I believe what that guy's saying? And I'm like, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you, mm-hmm. you can do that. And we, he and I would have very candid conversations, you know, just about the community. And there was this one organization um, that it was an African-American organization. And so kind of a bullying, a little bit of a technique of, oh, if you don't, you know, support my cause, you know, I'm going to like everybody who's African-American is going to be mad at you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, my boss, he came to me one day, he goes, you know, I think we gotta do this. And I'm like, why? He goes, we don't want everybody mad with us. I'm like, let me tell you something. I said, it's not like that. I said, you know what? This group isn't even well respected in the African American community. And I said, so don't think that if we don't do support this event, Mm that everybody in the African-American community is gonna be upset with you or with us. It's not that way. Mm -hmm. He was like, oh, he goes, well, I thought if we didn't, they would be mad. I'm like, no, I said, we don't have, that's money we can save and, mm-hmm. you know, do something else with it. So we helped each other yeah. in that regard. And I like that's a really good example because it's cultural. And he probably was like, whoa, like he would expected you to be completely on board with exactly. that. And you're like, no, that's not what it takes. Uh, Mr. Warren was his name? Yes. Rest in peace? No. He's no, still with We're us. still very good friends. Love it. All right. Sorry yeah. about that. You ain't going any, you're not going anywhere anytime soon. Um <laughs> Please bear with me because I do tend to jump all over the place. No, no, that's fine. All right, I've been fairly focused, but I want to take a step back to your childhood and your your parents and this this excellent credit. Um, I think that there is, I'm baffled by that. 
for some reason. I think that that's something that we as uh, we just don't learn, right? Um, but as far as generational wealth, this is my question for you. I know that they have passed on, correct? Yes. So did you did you get an inheritance? I did. I okay. did, and wow. I I held on to it for for a long time. Uh huh. And then I realized that I'm never going to move back uh-huh. to rural Alabama. And I reached out. Well, actually, this gentleman reached out to me because a lot of people had reached out to me to to sell it. Uh-huh. Like, you want to sell the house? And I had already sold most of the land where my parents were still living. So I'm glad I did that because mm-hmm. they could use the money at that time. And this gentleman reached out to me and he says, look, he goes, your land really it connects with my land Mm -hmm. and he said are you going to ever move back here and i'm like no i'm not never happening it's i'm not going to do that and he says i'll buy it he Mm -hmm. says because you know if i in the house was still on the land and everything and he said um you know let's let's come up with a deal and so i got the deeds and it was you know in my name and everything and i sold it and Mm -hmm. i never really looked back or mm-hmm. felt bad about it. I mean, occasionally we will, my daughter lives in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, now with her husband and kids. And so sometimes we'll ride there cause it's like a 45 minute drive. Mm-hmm. You know, all of my aunts are now deceased. And so mm-hmm. other than some cousins, I mean, there's no one there. The home, you know, I'll ride by and you get kind of nostalgic, but uh, yeah. I'm glad I sold it, you yeah. know, and I sold it to someone um, who really, wanted it was going to take care of it and it was right i mean it was the the land connected i knew him you know growing up as a kid and it just made sense i like there's a lot to be said for you selling the land to somebody that you liked and you knew that it would be taken care of yeah there's a lot to be said for that um nostalgia i was talking to my buddy about this the other day and it's been a hot topic for me lately as far as uh, how nostalgia can sometimes be a little dangerous but sometimes positive I want to talk to you about that at some point, but here's, this was my, this was where my question was leading to this. Will your sister, excuse me, will your daughter receive an inheritance? Our kids? Mm-hmm. Oh yes. We've already got it taken, set up. Wow. So and, think about my husband's in insurance. Uh, totally. So it was a <laughs> totally, dumb question. Yeah. But what, I mean, cause I think that as far as um, people of color, mm-hmm. um, I know as far as my connection to my mother and father, um, I, I never expected an inheritance. My mother passed in 2000. I never received one, obviously, which is okay. And my father, you know, doesn't have that, doesn't live like that. But, um, there's like a, it seems like again there's a new a new standard was set with your parents with you and it's going to continue right? right yes and you know because of what my husband does um, you know with structured settlements and even before going into that just being in the insurance industry and he's seen that he's experienced when you know uh, families will will pass away and they haven't taken care of things appropriately so mm-hmm. you have kids right who are entitled or family members who are entitled to a home or land or money, but because things weren't done appropriately, mm-hmm. um, it ends up just really being a, a legal nightmare. Uh-huh. And so he's taking care of all that for, and you've met right. our son, right? Uh-huh. So oh, yeah. for both kids. Right, yeah. right. And you and your kids are fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well, like your you. son, that's the one who I remember specifically. Um, Generational wealth, you know, I, as, as hot topics continue to, you know, trend and people are having these discussions, which is so fantastic. This is what needs to happen is people just talking dialogue. Generational wealth is something I have to keep arguing with people against because, you know, I don't want to go as simple as gerrymandering. But when you look at, you know, what black folks were and were not allowed to have um, in the past hundreds, hundreds mm-hmm. of years, let alone just the past 40 or 50. Again, it seems like this experience was rare for you and in, in, in Campbell, Camp, Camp Hill, Camp rather. Hill. Um, were other black folks thriving too? So it's, it's interesting that some were, uh-huh. you know, but, but some weren't. And I think that was my mother's father had land also. And so it was just kind of a generational yeah. thing with them. And I think that was why they instilled that in me mm-hmm. uh, as well that you know to have a home they she had a car he had a truck and so when people say oh you grew up poor and i'm like we weren't poor i said we were rural mm-hmm. you know we weren't rich but you know we had things and the things they had they were very proud of them and they took care of them because uh, i know she would get so frustrated if she would pass someone's house and you know it was run down or Uh there were like old cars in the yard and she was like if you've been blessed with something you need to take care of it yeah i agree with her that just 
one of those things that just stuck with me. Uh-huh. She was about that look. Dude, were you always in little dresses as a kid? Oh, absolutely. Oh, uh-huh, you were a little yes. doll. You oh, were the yeah. doll. When I just said that nostalgia can be dangerous, does that does that ring does that sound right? Does that resonate to you or no? You know, I think that um I think it can, but I also think that is is good, uh-huh. right? In a lot of ways. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I just threw that out there. Again, I'm all over the board with, yeah. with these conversations and um I was talking to a friend and he was uh, listening to music and it was reminding him of some sad times and he kind of stayed in that place. And I'm like, yo, that's a prime example of how nostalgia can be dangerous, but to each their own. All right, let's move into some relevant topics about today. You know, I spoke to Ron Oden, as you know, I've talked to kind of a plethora of people. And, you know, I usually save this question for the for the end of the, the this topic, but do you have hope as far as what's happening with race relations and just all of this anger that people are dealing with? And in your experience, have you always had hope? Where are you with that? You know, I, I'm, I tend to be a very positive person, um, and I think we have to have hope, right? When I was um, in Dallas, and whatever community I work in, I always try to find vulnerable populations mm-hmm. um, and, and do work there, because I also think that particularly as minorities, when we find ourselves in positions where we can help people and be of influence, we have to do that. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that really early on when I would do work in some of the communities uh, in the Dallas area, when I would look into these kids' eyes and you could see there was no hope. Mm -hmm. And when people lose hope, that's really it's really sad. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to keep that hope, right? We have to keep that feeling that if that things will get better, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we And that doesn't mean that, you know, you're oblivious to what's happening. I mean, what's happening is real. Uh, I know even at, at my hospital there in Long Beach, when everything was going on and with the protests and the hospital is very diverse, we're, we're an urban facility, you know, downtown, but you could just kind of feel that tension and so we are a catholic hospital so i went to one of our sisters and said you know we need to do something went to the hr director so we had a day of solidarity and and prayer Mm -hmm. and it was beautiful and you know employees some were crying and you know we we prayed and it was needed it was needed and we played music and then we had these little um cards um, that they could write their feelings down on and hang on a tree. We put a tree in the lobby of the hospital and just say, write your feelings down. And there were so many employees that reached back out and said, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. You know, because you, you could just feel they just, they needed something. They needed to know that it's okay, mm-hmm. you know, to talk about this. Um, and our facility is probably about 75% represented um, by unions. And my SEIU group um, is a very diverse group. And so they were following the rules, but they were having an event on campus. And they were calling it Black Lives Matter. And so typically, um, you know, with management, you think, okay, management's union, you don't want to go out there. And I'm like, no, I'm going out there. I have a great relationship with these guys. I go to their meetings. And so I went outside where they were, and I said, you know what? I just want to thank you guys. And they were so happy. They were like, oh, it's our CEO. I said, yes. And they thanked me. They said, you know, thank you for having that event where, you know, people could just come and we could talk and we could write our feelings down mm-hmm. and they gave me a Black Lives Matter sign. And so that's why I said when you're a leader, you have to think about the things that you de- do mm-hmm. and how people are looking at you. And so I think the fact that I felt comfortable and I could feel that our teams just needed that outlet mm-hmm. that they could talk and that it was just, it was okay. Mm -hmm. It was okay to be sad. It was okay to be angry. It was okay to have these feelings of frustration, Mm -hmm. you know, but know that, you know, we're going to work together and that we're going to, we're going to get through this. Yeah. You keep mentioning the word leader, which is obvious. You'd have to be a leader to be able to kind of be in the roles that you've been in, right? Be in the shoes that you have lived in. I just love your story. And as we continue to learn more, but you use that as an example as far as how you thought, okay, something needs to change. How can I get with this group and create a change such as the Day of Solidarity? I spoke with David earlier. We talked about how you kind of bridge the gap between, uh, you know, the gay community and your time here at Desert Regional. How does somebody who is not on your level, for lack of better words, how can they get creative? How do we encourage people to get creative? 
How, is it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And how do we ins- give these kids hope? I think, it, you know, I think what everyone can do is that what I taught, what we taught our kids, right, is that people are more alike than they're different. And right. I think a lot of times the the prejudice that people feel or you know, it's because it's out of fear mm-hmm. because they don't know, right? This person, they look different. They worship different. Um, you know, they're gay. I'm straight. I mean, there's just so much. But if you get to know people and really try to understand them, um, you realize that we're really more alike than we're different. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I always tell people, mm-hmm. you know, but if we stay in our little bubble, whatever that bubble is, mm-hmm. um, then we're never, you know, going to come to that happy medium because this, my group is different from your group. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you about a very recent funny story. Um, Daniel and I were eating outside at this restaurant in Long Beach because now it's like dine out. Mm-hmm. And uh, two of our friends were there that uh, they're both gay, just great guys. And so they were had a friend that uh, owns the Silver Fox in Long Beach. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's this huge gay bar, right? Okay. And so they're like, oh, let's have a social distance. We can all talk. And so we didn't know the owner of the Silver Fox, but I heard about it because he supports my hospital because I have my own DAP. It's called CARE. And so I knew that he was a huge supporter. So we're talking. And so he finally looks at me, looks at Daniel, and, you know, it always comes up, where are you guys from? I hear their accent. Uh-huh. And John says, you're from Alabama, right? I'm like, yeah. And he looks at Daniel. He goes, you're from Texas. And Daniel says, yeah. He goes, why are you guys so accepting? And so he wow. was struggling with the fact that, you know, we're friends with his two friends. Uh, we're very accepting of people. And before I could say anything, Daniel said, we just love everybody. And we taught our kids to do to, to do the same, right? I was happy that he felt comfortable asking us that, mm-hmm. but I don't know what his background was that he's thinking. Okay, here are these two black people from the South, right? And they're accepting of me. They're accepting of these guys, and we're totally different. We're white. We're gay. Mm-hmm. You know, how is this? And I think it it does start you know, sometimes when you're younger, but even as we get older, it's just that learning that acceptance, you know, it's okay to accept people for who they are and try to learn about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking with Stan Henry the other day, and we were talking just pretty much about this, and, you know, we have much more in common than we have than not right so we were using silly examples like we like pizza we like you know and it's true i mean you can start from something as small as food to something as grand as um you know your morals right um and things that you believe in um so you mentioned black lives matter let's move into that quickly this has been such a positive conversation and i really like that and i don't ever want it to be a negative conversation but sometimes people have stories to share that are a little you know on the doom and gloom side so i'm really relieved to hear that um that's not really where that's not your that's not your perspective right you're just a positive person and you always have been um what do you think about black lives matter what do you think about um let's start with that and then i want to move on to white privilege i want to move on to um maybe a couple of other topics you can say something very brief you cannot say anything at all mm-hmm. but what do you think about black lives matter because i feel like there's this division with a lot of people as far as the message and then the organization right. so this is my perspective. Um, you know, being African American, having an African American husband, obviously, you know, having an African American son, when people say, well, all lives matter, the way I feel about that is that, you know, all lives can't matter unless black lives matter. My life matters. I don't like to feel that my son or my husband may not come home one day because they have a routine traffic stop and it goes bad, right? Mm -hmm. We lived in Missouri when our son went to the University of Arkansas. And I'm sure you hear the stories where African-American parents tell their sons, if you ever get pulled over by the cop, you know, just follow the rules. The goal is to make it home alive. Right. What we always told our son, it was just a three and a half hour drive, but we said, if you're gonna leave on Friday, and you're not going to make it home before it gets dark, 
stay to Saturday morning mm. because we didn't want him driving through those little towns coming home. Maybe nothing would have ever happened, but that was just what we felt. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel used to love to jog. And so he would like to go jogging at night, you know. And I would always say, take your driver's license. He's like, honey, why? I mean, this, this is our neighborhood. I live here. I said, I don't want something to happen. And you're jogging and someone stops you and says, hey, this house got broken into, you know. And you're standing there going, but I live here, but you have no proof that you live here. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that, that we feel, right, and that we think. And so that, and that's real. And because I think of incidents that we see, things that happen, um, even though, you know, I, because of the position I'm in, I've had good relationships with police officers in communities that I live in because, you know, Everybody wants to know the hospital CEO, and mm-hmm. you want to know your police chief and your police officers. But when we get pulled over, you know, you there's always that little bit of a fear, mm-hmm. like that little bit like, uh-oh, you know, even if you know you're speeding, right? It's right. like, I hope this goes okay. Yeah. And so when we say all lives matter, you know, because of whatever, yes, all lives matter, but all lives can't matter until black lives matter, until as a mother and a wife, I'm not afraid, you know, when they leave home. I'm not afraid for my son to drive from Missouri to Arkansas, mm-hmm. you know, at night. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not afraid for my husband to go jogging in the neighborhood that he lives in without a driver's license. Mm-hmm. Because I'm thinking someone's going to stop him, someone's going to question him, and maybe even question, do you really live in this neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Those are feelings that are real to us. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, I, a lot of things cross my mind as you talk. And my, why do you think, do you think that the people that don't quite understand what we're saying and what we mean when we say, of course, all lives matter, but we're talking about black lives matter. Mm-hmm. Why don't you think that it resonates with certain people? Is it just inherent prejudice? Just call it what it is? Yeah, I think it's experience, right? Because okay. if you have never experienced something, um, if you, you know, like when people say things like, you know, we're, I'm in this body every day, right? And so when you see me, you're going to see an African-American female. That's who I am. When you see my husband, right, that's who you're going to see. But if you don't live in this body, if you don't, you know, if you're not concerned about how people are going to perceive you or how people are going to treat you, then it's, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It's just that you don't understand. No, you don't get it. You don't get it. You mm-hmm. don't understand what you know, what we were going through. Daniel and I were talking uh, just yesterday, and when we first got married, we were looking for this house there in Texas um, and start a home, obviously. So we had told this realtor, this is what we want, right? And so my daughter, she was uh, four when we got married, so we got this little kid and want a safe neighborhood. We didn't have a lot of money, but there were still things that we wanted. Mm-hmm. And this realtor kept showing us these horrible houses in these horrible neighborhoods and so finally I said I said stop I said you have not shown us anything we told you that we wanted I said would you want to live here you know if you had a child he said well this is what you guys said you could afford I said just take us back take Mm -hmm. us back (laughs) let's get our car and then we found another realtor and we found a beautiful starter home in an amazing neighborhood. And so that's also, you've got to be willing to call it out for what it is, right. right? And stand up for yourself as well. I like that you said that you have to be willing to call it out. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, we, we either come from rage or we come from, you know, uh, in, like, not I don't want to say intimidation, but it's like, all right, let me pick and choose my battles. But I tr- truly believe in a, a space of accountability. Right. And that's kind of what you practice. There was a story about a, a black family somewhere in the South. They called uh, somebody to cut like a plumber. And the plumber rolled up and was giving them a bid. And then they went outside to look at his truck. And he had, she had Trump all over the truck. She uh-huh. says, no, I don't, I don't want your business. Right. You know, and that's holding, so that's, hold, that's accountability. It's an interesting example, but it's accountability. I was with a friend of mine a few weeks ago. We were at a store. And this store, they didn't want people's cell phones out. The rule was you can talk on your cell phone, um, but you can't be on it, Mm -hmm. right? So I was standing in line. My friend was behind me. He's white. And I was on a call, right? Uh, He was on his phone doing something. And the security came up and said, sir, I need you to not be on your phone. 
uh, but didn't say anything to me. Mike, you get where I'm going with this. Right. The point is my friend felt profiled and now never wants to go back to that store and still bitches about it to this day. Pardon my French. And I th- I love it. I love it because I'm like, there's one there's one small right. sliver of what we experience every damn day. Mm-hmm. Pardon my French again. No, so, exactly. So it's also important that viewers and listeners hear this because I don't want people that believe that all lives matter and they don't quite get the message. I don't want them to just uh, give up on the idea. It's true. It's about education. It's about experiencing something different than what you know. Exactly. You know? We always try to encourage people here, you know, travel. It's a great way to just experience you know, see what freedom doesn't look like in other places. See what racism looks looks like for other cultures. You know, um, sign sign with an X. That's just that's always going to blow my <laughs> mind. Um, so as we continue to talk about the movement, do you think that you know you already mentioned that there that you do have hope? Do you think that these people that are on the opposite side, on the opposition, you think they'll come around? I think some people will. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I really do. Um, I think that some won't. It's just based on, you know, how they how they are raised. I had a really um good friend when when I was living in uh, in Midland, Texas and she was a white female and we were talking one day, we became friends and she said she was from Tennessee. So I'm from Alabama and she says, You know, I wanna share something with you. She goes, You know I'm not racist. I'm like, No, of course you're not and she says, But I wanna tell you what my father told me and she says, and I don't think that he meant this badly, but this was kind of what was inside of him. So he had told her, because she didn't have a college degree, but, you know, she had a good job there at the hospital. Um, And she said, what he said to me was that, I need you to know that even if you don't have, you know, a college degree, that black people, even if they have a college degree, that because you're white, you're always going to be better than them. And she said she didn't feel that way. She didn't believe it. But that was what he taught her. Straight up said it. Yeah. And so after we became friends, she shared that with me. And she says, don't get me wrong. She said, my father's a he's a good person. She said, but that was how he felt. Mm-hmm. And she says, I never felt that way. But he felt that way. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. You know, that's just very interesting. But highlight the fact that you said that she said he was a good person. Yeah. Like it wasn't necessarily with... Um, malice right right? it's just what he just knew that was what he that was what he knew Uh yeah i'm glad you said that because i think a lot of the things that we see when you know you learn to you learn about taught racism learned behaviors there's usually some sort of rage attached to the image and this is just a man who sounds like he had a very clear loving delivery to his daughter right and it just was a fact and luckily you know she was someone that she didn't feel that way, mm-hmm, you know, and, and as she moved on and progressed in her life. But I, I felt it made me feel good that she felt comfortable enough with me to, to share, share that. that. Yeah, yeah, it's all learning. Yeah, it's all yeah. learning. And I love it because I guess to me also there's there's a small example in that story, which is that even if you are taught racism and it's something that you were grazed with, we're all individuals. You can make your own choices and be able to say this doesn't feel right to me. This isn't right. Exactly. You know, you don't have to just uh, fall in line. Right. And that's why I love free thinking. My mother always encouraged me to be a free thinker, question authority, all that stuff. But more importantly, to follow the golden rule and treat people with respect. And I think that's something that people need to uh, practice, especially nowadays. COVID-19, you yes. are you're, you're a hospital CEO. What's the deal? Can we start to relax? We, we're not even close, right? <laughs> no, we're not. And, you know, that's 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 another thing, too. And I'm sure you've seen the headlines and it's, it's very true. You know, we, we've got COVID, and, and it was interesting because, you know, February, January, we're thinking, okay, it's, you know, in China, wherever it comes to the States. Well, you know, it's older people. It's, okay, we're going to shut down for a couple of weeks, and then, wow, you know, here we are. Um, I can't emphasize enough, you know, wash your hand, wear a face mask, do all of those things. Mm-hmm. But the one thing is that... Um, it is impacting minority communities very heavily, mm-hmm. right? And I was interviewed for this um, in, in one of the news outlets there in Long Beach. Like, what are you guys seeing? Yeah, of course, that's what we're seeing. And what it is, I actually was on um, the American Hospital Association's Institute for Diversity, and I chaired the institute in 2011. And so we're still dealing with a lot of those things now, right? When we talk about um, 
you know, inequities in care, uh, social determinants of health, where where are the neighborhoods where you see that, right? Mm-hmm. Where are the neighborhoods where you have, you know, individuals living um, in multiple housing units, um, you know, lower paying jobs, um, individuals who a lot of them were in the service industry, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so they're they're being exposed. And so that's what you were seeing. And so I was so happy um, there in Long Beach, um, the president of the NAACP, Naomi, she was like on the ground, you know, trying to educate not just the African-American community, but the the marginalized community, the, the seniors, um, people who uh, were Hispanic or Cambodian, and she didn't have enough supplies. And so I saw this need that she had. And so my hospital, because we had a, a lot of things, we had a lot of masks and gloves. And so we just sent her a truckload of things. And she was so happy. I bet. Because she was like, wow, thank you. But I, And it wasn't just our facility. Other people were helping them. But she was just so happy because she's like, you know, I'm, I'm out here and I'm trying to talk to people and mm-hmm. tell them, you know, this is real and, and you need to, you know, wear a face mask and these are all things that you need to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing that we can do as well is make sure we're trying to educate people mm-hmm. and particularly in some of the, you know, minority or uh, uh, marginalized communities that, you know, this is real mm-hmm. and the steps that they can take. Um, but when we ask one thing that is really uh, unfortunate is that, in the minority community, particularly African American community, there is not a lot of trust mm-hmm. of the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Some of that stems back to the Tuskegee, uh, you know, experiment right. that right. went on for like 40 years, mm-hmm. and so that's another reason why, in this role, even when I was a chief operating officer, communities that I worked in, I would always try to go out into the African American community and be visible. Mm-hmm to let them know that, you know, you can trust me. Uh, But that distrust, that fear is real. Mm -hmm. I remember going out and doing health fairs and, you know, giving information and people would ask, what are you gonna do with this? No, we're just, we're trying to help you. Mm -hmm. So I think because of that, you have a group of people also that they just don't trust the healthcare system and rightfully so because of things that have happened to them in the past. So because of that distrust, they're probably not as eager to to get the help mm-hmm. or to ask questions, which is another reason why it's so infor- important that we have diversity in our healthcare field. Yeah. We need to have physicians, nurses, administrators that look like the communities they serve mm-hmm. so they can go out and connect with those communities. And that's happening, right? We are seeing diversity yes. within the healthcare system. Absolutely. I mean, even when I go to like see my primary, I'm like, oh, hey. Yes. You know, I'm hearing somebody speaking Spanish in the corner, right? right? They're accommodating and that's, uh, you're seeing things diversify. Absolutely. I love it. See, that's what I love about you. Every, every, every answer has got something positive at the end. I mean, this is part of your message and part of who you are. I asked you this earlier and I know you can't answer it, but it's really because of how you're positioned but how do you make giving back seem so easy you're like oh well so then we had the masks and we had this so we loaded a truck or you're like you know or we you know it's a day of solidarity people were sad so we just get, we did it like you make it sound and seem so easy how do we get people that are listening to make small calls to action for themselves mm-hmm. you know i think it has to be a part of who you are yeah. and i think for me um it's it goes back to my parents right because they farm with this little small farm and so they would grow food right and you gave it away i mean you 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 fed your neighbors and if someone needed something you know whether it was vegetables or you know we had cows and 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 pigs and everything so they were always helping now the difference was that my father was a lot more free hearted right he's mm-hmm. like oh help them they need something my mom on the other hand would sometimes say well when we were you know out there working in the hot sun and planting our garden what were they doing mm-hmm. <laughs> and he would say honey we've got plenty you know go ahead and give them some greens it's like yeah. okay and so I think it we should as a people we should want to help people mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. and this is what we always taught our kids as well 
you know, if God has blessed you to either to be in a position where your voice has meaning, then you should want to help people. You should always want to reach back and, and help. Um, if you're working in a community, you know, you should want to help that community. What can you do to make it better? Mm-hmm. It sounds like as you, uh, upbringing, as far as what you saw and from your parents and from their actions, you had a, tr- a real definition of community. You know, there's a word community, there's a show community, and then there's your actual a feeling of community. And that is truly a village. It's looking out for everybody, right? Making sure everybody's got a piece. I love that. And I was kind of raised similar to that. I was raised in a small suburb. My mom was very immersed in the community. And that's, uh, I think I attribute a lot of my volunteerism to that. It's just, I feel like we're obligated. You know, we need to do that. Um, All right. We could talk for hours. I don't want to wrap this up just yet. But as always, I ask my guests, is there anything that you would like to, to, to add to the conversation? Anything that's important to you that you'd like listeners or viewers to hear? I think that the main thing I would, I would say, Brian, is that you know, we are in a very challenging time right now in our country, uh, in our communities. And what I would tell listeners particularly is that if you're in a position where people listen, you know, to what you're saying, don't be afraid to speak up. You know, don't be afraid to to help others. Um and and educate yourself because we have a tendency to watch things that that feel comfortable to us right i mean we love msnbc we love cnn uh, but i'll watch fox because i want to know what is the opposing side saying you know um and just reading your your local news i love reading the la times i still read the desert sun even though i'm in long beach i read the press telegram as well and something that it goes back to that upbringing you know never being afraid to to speak up if you see something that isn't right or just doesn't feel right you can speak up you know it doesn't you don't have to even be in a position of authority to do that mm-hmm. um so we should always be willing to to lend our voice or to lend ourselves you know to help others mm-hmm. and try to do whatever you can to make the situation you're in better mm-hmm. and i think sometimes people feel like you know they've got to do these big grand things right it's like oh i've got to you know send a truckload of things over to help people you don't I, I think you can do what's within you or what's within your means to try to help people if everyone can just do one little small act of kindness every day just think how wonderful things would be and then when you're listening to what people are telling you how they feel or their life experiences we all have a different life experience listen un- try to understand that person and understand what what they've gone through and and be there for them i love it speak up use your voice Mm -hmm. acts of kindness and listening i think that uh, especially in such an inflammatory time we're living in people want to debate and argue and talk but people are sometimes hearing they're not listening Correct. they're not they're not they're not making a conscious effort to understand what the person's saying right so thank you for that. Um, also, and as I told you before, we always ask for some solutions. Do you have something to lend to that? What are some solutions for people at home that they can do to make, to do their part? I think solutions is, um, you know, try and have an, an open mind. Um, and I, just going back to, you know, as, as we see things happening around us, what can you do to make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I go back to, you know, working in the lab and realizing I wanted to do something different. I wanted to make a difference and feeling like, well, I can't do it here and I can't, you know, I've got to get more education. But even if you, if it's not an educational type of thing, just try to look and think about what can I do mm-hmm. as a person to make things better, mm-hmm. you know, around me. Mm-hmm. I love it. We can all do something. And as you said, it's not this Herculean task. It's no. not this huge mountain you have to climb. It could be as simple as just going through your closet, grabbing some clothes you don't use, and dropping them off at the shelter. Exactly. Right? Making a small donation to, to, a, to a charity that you believe in. 
What are some charities of your choice before we say goodbye? What is before we say goodbye? Yeah. Well, of course, you know I love Desert A's project, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Um, so the American Heart Association uh-huh. is another one. Boys and Girls Club, uh-huh. um, you know those type of organizations. My and of course I have dear friends that um, work with theater. You know, mm-hmm. so Desert Performs, mm-hmm. uh, those guys. You know, Chuck Yates with Coyote Stagecoach. Mm-hmm. So really trying to um, to be there to support them as individuals, but support those causes as well. All right, I love it. Desert Age Project, Boys and Girls Club Theater. Lots of loves, lots of philanthropy, lots of time you gave me over an hour. I appreciate that. <laughs> Has it been an over an hour? It's been over an hour. Oh it's been gosh. good. It was good. Time flies when you're great. having fun. I right? know. It's been wonderful. Covered some great stuff. Yeah. And thank you. I mean, thank you for doing this. Yeah. Because I think sometimes people just need to hear others. Yeah. Right. And just go, well, you know. Right. We, we're all in this together. Right. And, and we can make a difference. Thank you. And we're not, you know, it'd be nice to cure cancer. You'd probably be better at that than me. But um, it's not like we're trying to, you know, again, move mountains. We're just here having dialogue, I think, for people to be able to, uh, you know, resonate uh, things that be, people are able to uh, understand and learn about. You know, I'm, now I'm rambling. It's been a long day. But again, I'm just so grateful you're here today. We're going to get you back. All right. So be ready for that call when I call you back. Everybody, Carolyn Caldwell, we appreciate you. Uh, and we also appreciate all of the viewers and listeners, new and old, old meeting loyal. We love you. Do your part. Take care of each other. And uh, talk to you soon. I am absolutely confident that you continue to do your part. Thank you for listening to another episode of Do Your Part. I work at staying awake. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment. Stay connected with Brian Gallo through social media at Do Your Part Podcast or visit doyourpartpodcast.com.